Welcome to OB Wannabes, an educational podcast about obstetrics and gynecology and women's health for medical students and women's healthcare providers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of OB Wannabes. I'm Cassie. And I'm Shelby. And this week, we're in the third and final part of our series on contraception and the different types. So we've talked so far about the just a general overview. And then last week, we went more in depth looking at LARCs um, and the short acting hormonal options. Uh, So this week, we're going to be talking about the rest of those. Yeah, so we'll get right into it. Um, So the first uh, method that we'll talk about today is withdrawal. Um, Laymen may call this pulling out. Um, In medical terms, we call this coitus interruptus, supposedly. I don't know. I've mainly heard it called withdrawal. (laughs) Um, So if you don't know what this is, (laughs) it's it's planning where when someone has intercourse, uh, the male will um, pull out of the female before climaxing so that uh, sperm doesn't come in contact with the uh, vagina or, you know, enter the cervical canal and the uterus. Um, this has a typical use uh, failure rate, meaning, you know, if you're not consistent, if you're not making sure that you're withdrawing every time, uh, the typical use failure rate is about 27%. And the perfect use uh, failure rate is actually as low as 4%, uh, which I find a little bit surprising. Um, But I think it is important to consider the typical use rate here. Um, There's a lot of things to consider if this is your only method of contraception. Um, You know, it needs to be done every single time someone has intercourse. Uh, There's also the risk um, because there is some pre-ejaculation during intercourse. Uh, This, you know, increases your risk that you can still get pregnant, uh, even if uh, your partner is withdrawing every time. Let's talk about one that's kind of interesting Um, (laughs) uh, and has become, it seems like it's become a little more popular, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the past decade, fertility awareness-based methods um, or FAB. Um, This uh, would be uh, if a female wants to um, not use, you know, hormonal birth control or, um, you know, is in a longstanding relationship and doesn't want to worry about using a barrier method every time. you would identify the fertile days of your menstrual cycle based on both how long your cycle typically is and the physical manifestations of ovulation, which can be the change in cervical discharge or your basal body temperature. And um, on the days that you are typically found to be fertile during your menstrual cycle, you would avoid intercourse on those days or use a barrier method like a condom. Um, so good candidates for this method would be, you know, a female who's highly motivated, you know, they're okay with the fact that they need to keep constant track of their cycle. Um, they feel very in tune with their body. Um, someone who feels that they have strong communication and support from their partner to use this method. Um, and someone who has regular menses. So, you know, your, your period starts at a very predictable interval, you know, every month. Um, some cons of this method include, you know, it takes a lot of planning. Um, it's a time-consuming method, um, both to teach um, from a practitioner's perspective, and uh, it takes time to learn and to practice, you know, to really become knowledgeable in this method. Um, but 
definitely not trying to deter people. Um, we actually had someone come to our school and teach us about this method. And she's an OB-GYN in Arizona who really supports um, women in her practice, um, you know, learning about this method and, um, you know, women who want to be in tune with their body. I think that's really cool, you know, to try this method. Um, there is a difference in the perfect and typical use that I'll talk about here. So um, typical use um, failure rate is around 25% with the caveat that um, this number comes from including users who haven't been counseled by their doctor to talk about fertility awareness. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might not have all the tools they need to do this correctly. Um, the perfect use uh, failure rate is actually 05 to 5%. There's a few different uh, there's a few different methods, and so that's why there's a range there, but that's actually pretty low. Um, so I was impressed by that number. Um, so a few of the methods, I'll just you know kind of run through them really quickly. Um, the standard days method is when um, someone would avoid intercourse on days eight through nineteen of their cycle. Um, so this is the one method in the fertility awareness space where you actually have to have a regular cycle. You know, you have to be between every 26 to 32 days because, um, you know, it's an exact number that you're abstaining on those on those uh, cycles. Um, um, so you would either need to um, abstain from intercourse or you can use a barrier method. Um, and if you are abstaining, something to consider is that you would be abstaining 12 days every month. And so that's kind of the difference between these different methods under this category is that um, you're considering, you know, how, how often you need to abstain from intercourse. Um, another method is the cervical mucus or ovulation method. Um, this requires uh, tracking your cervical mucus several times a day, recognizing the cervical mucus change around ovulation um, and then abstaining um abstaining on the days that you have that specific mucus because you want to avoid the the time frame during your cycle that you're ovulating. Um, so this involves abstaining about 14 to 17 days every month or using a barrier method. Um, and then finally, there's a symptothermal method. And so um, a woman would check their basal body temperature. This is like a certain type of uh, thermometer. Uh, that you would use, um, you check it every morning before you get up from bed. And then you follow your cervical secretions, like I talked about before. And so, um, you know, usually there's like a calendar where they can mark, you know, what days of the month they have a certain temperature and a certain cervical secretion. And over time, they learn, oh, this is the about the basal body temperature change and cervical secretion change around ovulation. And so again, you avoid intercourse during those days. And so typically they'll avoid um, intercourse um, 12 to 17 days a month or use barrier method. And this one actually has one of the lower um, typical use failure rates, um, about 2%. Um, And so it's an interesting method, definitely becoming more popular. um, But you know, you have to be really on top of it. So personally, I would find it difficult, um, you know, to plan and then you can't really be spontaneous with your partner. So I don't know, there's some probably things to talk about, you know, if you have a long-term partner, if that's something that's right for you too. So 
so one of the cool things about this is that there's uh, apps you can use to help with the tracking. So there's apps you can use to track your menstrual cycle, but there's also apps specifically created to help with tracking uh, for fertility awareness. So you're able to keep track of things rather than, you know, pen and paper or um, in different ways through an app that'll help also guide you through what, exactly what you're looking for and those changes that you're looking out for and help you figure out the right times that you need to be abstaining and when you don't need to worry about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's about all I had to say about that, that method, if you want to talk about lactational amenorrhea. Yeah, so uh, postpartum, we talked about last time that the uh, Nexplanon um, implant is one of the best options for postpartum uh, contraception. You can also use the progestin-only option. What some women will do instead is you, uh, rely on breastfeeding. So uh, when you're lactating and you're exclusively breastfeeding, prolactin uh, is the hormone that is being released. And that inhibits, um, if anyone happened to listen to our episode talking about how the menstrual cycle works, uh, the pulsatile uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone, um, which is responsible for producing the estrogen and progestin that lead to ovulation. Uh, so with the prolactin from the breastfeeding, it inhibits that. So it suppresses ovulation from occurring. So a lot of women will use this method since they're already breastfeeding anyways and uh, use that as their form of contraception. So this has a 2% perfect use uh, failure rate and a 5% failure rate with typical use. It's effective only for the first six months postpartum. Uh, so you can't go longer than six months with this method. And it's only if you are exclusively breastfeeding and you're breastfeeding every four hours during the day and at least every six hours at night. So you can't do like partial breastfeeding and partial formula or supplemental feeding. It needs to be exclusively breastfeeding and it has to stay within those time frames to make sure that you're uh, producing that prolactin to inhibit the uh, release of the um, gonadotropin hormone to suppress the ovulation. Another thing to keep in mind is that ovulation will start to occur again before the return of menstruation. So even if you haven't had your menses yet and you think that you're still in that lactational amenorrhea and you're protected from pregnancy, uh, the ovulation can start happening first be uh, before your menses returns. So another thing to keep in mind with that one. Awesome. Yeah. So Shelby, you want to tell us some more about the barrier methods now? Yeah, absolutely. So by and large, uh, the most common barrier method that uh, most people know about is the male condom. Um, it's one of our most accessible, least expensive, um, most discreet forms of birth control. Um, definitely is popular in, you know, uh, public health because uh, it's the only method that protects, one of the only methods that protects against um, STIs. If you include female condoms, which do um, decrease the risk of STI uh, transmission, um, but not as effective as the male condom. So the male condom by far is uh, the most effective in protecting STIs. Um, so there are different materials that they're made out of, uh, the latex, rubber, natural membranes like lambskin and synthetic. Um, the latex rubber is, is uh, definitely the most protective against STIs. Synthetic is as well, but maybe not quite as quite as well as latex. Um, 
the natural membranes actually aren't protective because um, they have small pores that um, viruses can can get through. Um, so typically they're about 0 0.08 millimeter average thickness, which I found interesting because I think people worry about, you know, it affecting sensation, uh, which is definitely a real concern. Um, but they are typically very thin, but they do vary in size, thickness, shape. Um, if you don't know what these are, they go onto, <laughs> onto the penis um, during intercourse. And so one of the benefits of this is that, you know, long term, the body isn't being exposed to any kind of hormone. You're not taking a medication every day. It's only specific to intercourse. Um, and so uh, it protects against unintended pregnancies and STIs. So I'm just going to reiterate that. Um, there are spermicide coated condoms, but typically we don't recommend these because they're not shown to be any more effective than uh, regular condoms. And they're associated with an increased risk of UTIs in females. Um, they also are shown to have a shorter half, uh, shorter shelf life. Um, and so, you know, if someone buys a whole pack, then they could go bad before they use them. So it's not really shown to be, you know, beneficial to buy those um, just for everyone's uh, knowledge. Um, for, for condoms in general, not, not the spermicide coated. Um, perfect use has a 2% failure rate. So if you're using them consistently and correctly, you know, using them every time and using them before any kind of genital contact. Um, and then typical use, you know, things happen. People don't, you might not put them on at the right time. Um, about 13% failure rate. Uh, so some pros of, of male condoms, uh, as we said before, only one really that protects against STIs. There's minimal side effects. They're easily accessible. Um, they're discreetly carried. You can put them in, in your purse or whatever. Um, not recommended to store them in a wallet for like years and years um, just because, you know, they could <laughs> expire in the time that they're in there or they can actually, uh, you could perforate the wrapper and then they're not, you know, uh, sterile anymore. So just a little sidebar. Um, some cons uh, about the condom is uh, some people might have a latex allergy. Um, so you can't use the latex material. Um, you might need to use a synthetic. Um, requires some partner cooperation. Um, there are some things to consider for the male partner. Um, there have been, you know, people have complained that uh, it can reduce sensitivity. Um, it might affect their ability to maintain an erection um, throughout intercourse. Um, and uh, some partners might find that um, the condom that they buy, it might not fit properly, which not only affects, you know, satisfaction, but also increases the risk that it could break or slip, um, which, you know, then affects its effectiveness. Um, so those are some cons to consider. Um, also, uh, if someone's using a latex condom, they need to consider if they're using any kind of lubricant, um, it needs to be water-based, oil-based lubricants actually um, decrease the effectiveness of, of the latex condom. Um, and this also uh, should be considered if um, the female partner is using any kind of topical cream um, on the vagina. Um, if someone's using topical myconazole for like um, a yeast infection, and then, you know, 
because I don't know who's having intercourse during a yeast infection, but when it's better, (laughs) if you like, you know, have intercourse shortly after that and that cream is still in the vaginal area, it can actually affect the, um, it can change the effectiveness of the condom. So it's something to consider. Um, but really overall, it's a, it's a good option uh, for people that don't, don't want to go to the doctor and get a prescription for contraception. Um, I think it's a good point you made, you know, the use, uh, I think very much a uh, user error, user dependence. So, um, making sure that, you know, the male partner is putting the condom on properly. They know the proper way to put it on. And like you mentioned, the improper fit, I know, that sometimes uh, there's a bunch of different size condoms out there and things like that. So sometimes people get the wrong size for themselves. So it's important to make sure that you're, they're keeping track of that and making sure it's the right size. Cause if it's too big for them, you know, then it doesn't fit tight enough and it's things can sl- uh, still slip out the sides, things like that are not as uh, much of satisfaction as you mentioned earlier. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, and then uh, female condoms, uh, they are maybe be- becoming a little more popular, but probably aren't as accessible as a male condom. Um, for typical use, they're about 21% failure rate. And for perfect use, they have a 5% failure rate. And so um, this would be a condom that goes into the vagina. Um, so some benefits of this is um, it might be a little bit more comfortable. Um the female might feel like they're taking control over, you know, protecting themselves, um, but might not be as, as easy to, to find as the male condom. Some other barrier methods that probably are falling out of popularity now, but I'll mention, um, there's the diaphragm. It's dome-shaped insert with a flexible rim uh, that the female would put in the uh, vagina before intercourse. And typically they'll put a spermicide in the diaphragm. Um, So for typical use, it has a 16% failure rate and for perfect use as a 6% failure rate. Um, Some cons to consider with the diaphragm is it increases the risk of UTIs. If there's pelvic floor issues, uh, it might be difficult to insert it correctly. And also um, it can be difficult to insert or some women might find it uncomfortable. Um, so it's definitely not our easiest option. Um, another option are sponges. Um, these, um, are disc shaped sponges that contain spermicide, uh, non-oxanol nine. Um, and again, you would put it in the vagina before intercourse, um, with typical use in a Paris female, meaning someone that's had kids before, uh, there's a 32% failure rate and perfect use 20%. Um, For someone who hasn't had kids before, the typical use failure rate is 16% and perfect use is 9%. So that's super interesting. I'm not, I guess I'm not too familiar with this method, so I don't know why that is, but um, something to consider. Um, It sounds like if someone's had uh, a pregnancy before, um, this isn't a great option. Um, you know, 32% for typical use. That's, that's actually worse than withdrawal, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So those are kind of the barrier methods, Uh, you know, 
by far uh, male condoms are most um, most popular. So now we're going to move on to the permanent methods. Uh, there's female and male options for the permanent methods. And while we say permanent, there is a possibility of having a reversal done on these methods, but they vary in how effective the reversal can be. So usually if you're having one of these methods done, it's expected that it is going to be permanent. In general, there's a less than 1% failure rate with both perfect and typical use for these. So for women, the uh, most common is gonna be uh, tubal ligation uh, where they're cutting the, basically cutting up the tubes and making it so that the, if the egg is ovulated, it doesn't go into the uterus where, um, or into the tubes where it can be fertilized. So there's a, uh, quite a few different options for this. You can have uh, postpartum, which happens within two days of delivery, and that's actually the most effective. And then there's the interval sterilization, which is anytime outside of those two days after delivery. There's also a lot of different options and methods for how you do the tubal ligation. Um, you can do it laparoscopically, or you can do it um, via very tiny incision in the abdomen, um, pull the tube out to cut it that way. And there's also different ways where you can either tie the tubes off, you can do cautery, so you burn them, uh, you can insert something uh, into the tubes to um, kind of like as a mechanical obstruction and it creates scar tissue so that it blocks off the tubes. Um, this is the transcervical sterilization is one of these options where you would go through the cervix to insert something into the tube. This option requires confirmation of its efficacy with a hysterosalpingogram at three months after the procedure to make sure that that scar tissue has formed and that the tubes are blocked off. So as I mentioned, there is a possibility of reversal, but it's not always successful. Uh, the most successful reversals are the, if they do a clip where they just put a clip over the tube. Um, and then in general, I know that some women are one, wonder, you know, how do I have a tubal ligation? If that's something that I want to do, if I want to have a permanent method done, do I need to be a certain age? Is this, uh, what are the requirements? So in terms of having a federal program paying such as Medicaid or other types of insurance like that, uh, you have to be 21 years old and you have to sign a consent form 30, at least 30 days before your procedure. So uh, they wanna make sure that you, it's not something like I wanted, I decided today I'm gonna do it and I'm getting it done tomorrow. They wanna make sure that you have time to think about it. Uh, depending on what state you're in depends on what they consider the lowest age uh, to be in order to have a tubal ligation done. Um, if you want the tubal ligation done at your delivery, uh, you have to sign the consent form at least 30 days before the baby is due in order for your physician to be able to do it for you. There are uh, many physicians who won't perform a tubal ligation on women who are under the age of 25 to 30. Uh, the reason why is that they've done studies and there's a high rate of regret. So women who got a tubal ligation done when they were younger and then later on uh, wish that they hadn't because they wanted to be able to have kids. So they just, the physicians want to confirm and make sure that women are confident in that decision um, before they perform the procedure. So for men, it's the vasectomy, which is where the vas deferens gets cut on both sides uh, for the testicle. So this prevents the sperm from mixing with the semen. Sperm are still produced by the testicles, but they're actually reabsorbed um, into the man's body. With perfect use, it's 0.1% um, failure rate and 0.15% with typical use. 
not entirely certain why there's a difference there since it's a uh, surgical procedure. Um, well, actually, you know what? I do, I do think I have, I, th- I, I have, I have an idea. I have an idea. I think so this, I'm not positive. So don't quote me on this anyone, but, um, one of the things you have to do after you have a vasectomy is that you have to use an alternative birth control for several months, usually about three months until the semen's tested and shows a zero sperm counts. So I think the typical use is the men who don't wait those three months uh, and, or they don't wait until they have that zero sperm count. So once it's cut, yes, it is, you know, it's, it's happened, it's done, but it takes some time for there to be the se- uh, semen without sperm. So the man is still the man is still able to ejaculate. He still has semen, but there's just no sperm in the semen. There's about a one in two thousand failure rate of the surgery itself, and there is it is possible to have a reversal of this procedure, but it's very expensive and it's not super effective. So it's uh, it doesn't always work out if you want a reversal. Uh, that's pretty much all of our methods that we would use either prior to or during intercourse. Uh, now we're going to talk about our postcoital options. So. Something to remember, and we talked about this before, is that these options, um, postcoital options, also called emergency contraception, they don't interrupt a pregnancy. So they are not effective if pregnancy has already been established. What they do is that they work by either inhibiting or delaying ovulation, or they interfere with the tubal transport or fertilization of the egg or prevent implantation. So using these methods is not an abortive method. It is still a contraceptive method. Because if it, you if a woman is already pregnant, it won't work. So there's several different options. Uh, as Shelby mentioned in our last episode, the copper IUD or the Paragard is actually the only IUD that is a option for postcoital contraception. You can insert it up to five days after intercourse for it to be effective, but it does require an office visit for insertion. And it is the most effective form of emergency contraception. There's about a zero to 2% failure rate uh, with this method. And what's nice about it is that if you have um, a young woman who comes in and wants to have uh, postcoital contraception, but is also not interested in having children in the next, you know, few years and wants like a long-term option for birth control, the copper IUD is a great choice because it allows for both the postcoital contraception that's needed at that time and also for the long-term birth control option. So then we also have uh, several different options with pills um, that you could take. There's the selective progesterone receptor modulator, the the Ella or Eulopristol. You can take this uh, medication up to five days after uh, the intercourse, and uh, it is by prescription only. So you're not able to get this over the counter. You have to get a prescription from a doctor or another healthcare professional who can write prescriptions. Uh, There's a 1.4% failure rate with this method. And side effects include headache, nausea, and irregular bleeding. And then I think the most uh, well-known emergency contraception is the Plan B, uh, which is a progestin-only option. This works best up to three days after um, the intercourse, and you can have it get it over the counter. Uh, there's two different types, or several different types. Uh, some of them you can get over the counter with no age restriction, and for some of them you do need to be at least 17 years old to purchase it. It is effective up to 120 hours after intercourse, but it is most effective in that first 72 hours. So usually if it's within three days, plan B is a great option. Um, If it's after it's in those three to five days, you'll want to use one of our other methods. So this has a 2.2% failure rate and it is less effective if the patient is obese. 
Um, we also can use combined the progestin estrogen pills, and you can use these up to five days after, and you need a prescription for these as well. These have a much higher rate of nausea um, as a side effect, and there's about a 50% higher relative risk of pregnancy compared to plan B. So it's definitely not as effective as plan B, um, but it can be used up to five days after. There's also a method called the USE method, uh, which does not need a new prescription. Um, it involves taking two to five of the combined oral contraceptive pills. So if you already have oral contraceptive pills that you've been taking, um, you can take two to five of them every 12 hours, twice. So you'll take it and then you'll take it again 12 hours later within 72 hours of the unprotected intercourse. It's much less effective, but it may be more accessible because it might be something that you already have at home or easy access to when you don't need to go out and get, either get a prescription or purchase it from somewhere. So depending on which uh, oral contraceptive pill that you're going to be using depends on how much you take, whether it's that two or the anywhere from that two to five range. Uh, there is a website called bedsider.org where you can find the dosing based on what pill uh, you have. So those are our postcoital methods. Um, and that's pretty much all of the methods that there are for contraception. Wow, look at all the methods. <laughs> I know, I definitely learned a lot uh, looking into all of these. Some things I'd never heard of before, or like, you know, Shelby and I, we were just looking up uh, pictures of what some of these look like because we never, we've heard of them, but never really seen them. So uh, pretty fun to dive into that and learn more about these. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously people could probably hear me blushing just talking about withdrawal method, but these are things I'll have to talk <laughs> about with patients. So it's good practice mm -hmm. for us. So thanks for being our audience on that. <laughs> yeah. And for anyone who's interested in things like the fertility based methods, uh, we will be do perhaps to be doing a future episode uh, kind of talking more about how to do that, because I know it's like Shelby mentioned, we had that talk, um, so definitely something that's very interesting, but you need to really understand how it works um, in order to make sure you're doing it effectively. But hopefully we'll do something on that in the future. Sounds great. Um, yeah, so this wraps up our three-part series on contraception. Thanks so much for joining us. Last, You can uh, check out our last two weeks episodes for our general overview and looking at other types of contraception. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about our rotations that we've been on a little bit. So Shelby's going to be sharing with us her experience on her gynecologic oncology rotation, what she learned, and what exactly gynecologic oncology is from the perspective of a third-year medical student. Uh, so we hope you guys join us then. And if you guys have any questions that you want answered about that, let us know. Alrighty. We are third year medical students at Toro University of Nevada, College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we are student members of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and ACUG, the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The views expressed in this episode are not representative of any of these organizations, and this podcast is not affiliated or associated with any of these organizations.